quick. Okay, I want to speak about tonight the, the concept of the value of mitzvahs. What exactly can we describe as the value of a mitzvah? We know the Torah itself promises that if we do the right thing, if we do mitzvahs, then we're going to get rewarded. There is a schar to the mitzvah. There's a reward. There's some benefit that a person has if they perform a mitzvah. And we know in the same time that the Torah prescribes punishments. If a person doesn't have error, if a person does something wrong, then the Torah gives all sorts of punishments. But there's a tremendous difference in the punishments that we are taught in the Torah than in the reward that is taught to us for mitzvahs. So punishments are quite explicit. You do this wrong, it's a cause and effect. And the Torah is quite, quite rigid in the details about going back and forth of the different types of punishments and the severity of different types of sins. And the punishments are pretty clear in the Torah. But what's not clear is the reward for mitzvahs, the value of a mitzvah. And although there are a few anomalies, a few almost exceptions that prove the rule, where the Torah does go out of its way to mention the specific reward that's waiting for us if we do a certain mitzvah, but usually that's not the case. Generally, the Torah just describes, you know, if you do, there's going to be good, there's going to be something. And uh, to the extent that we even have one of the Mishnayos in, uh, in, in, in Pirkei Avos, we even see that the Mishnah tells us, don't go ahead and think about the reward for mitzvahs. We see such a thing. Don't think about mitzvahs too much. Don't think about what the reward is. Don't do it because of the reward. Just do it because of the mitzvah. It's not even something that our mind should be thinking of. And that's the lesson, Montignish is Soho, that we shouldn't be mishamish esarava menas lekaboschar. We shouldn't be obsessed with what the reward is about. And we know, unfortunately, that his message was, was really something that was perverted by the Tzedukim and the Baisusim. They completely missed the correct point of what he was trying to say. They thought he was saying that there really isn't a reward. If you're not supposed to think about it, it must be it's not worth thinking about because it's not really that valuable. That was a horrible mistake, and that's what led in the middle, the beginning and the middle, and then even the end of the Second Temple to the horrible, horrible disputes between the rabbis, the Purushim, and the Tzedukim. But what our response is from the rabbinic standpoint, the regular the mainstream uh, religious standpoint in terms of what the perspective is for mitzvahs is that of course there is a reward, but we're not meant to obsess with the reward. The Torah doesn't tell us what the reward is. We're left in the dark. We're left wondering, what is this reward of the value of the mitzvah? What is in store for us? We don't know, but it's not meant for us to think about too much almost. That's the directive that the, the Mishnah and Perkei Avos tells us. But what exactly does that mean to us on a practical level? And is there anything that we're supposed to relate to as a mitzvah? How valuable is it? Maybe, you know, sometimes it's something that's abstract. We'll have to wait to olam haba. But just in a simple perspective, as we go through life, what, what are we supposed to think is happening in terms of the value that we are achieving when we perform a specific mitzvah? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to share my screen and pull up some of the texts that we can look at. So we have here a Mishnah in Pirkei Avos. And it's uh, the first Mishnah in the second parak of Pirkei Avos. And it's in the name of Rebbe, the great Rebbe Yudha Hanasi. Rebbe Yudha Hanasi is the leader of, uh, is the Nasi, and he lives, he lives to post the Korban, and he lives towards the end of the uh, 165 to about 217 of the Common Era. And he, the Gemara describes, was an extremely wealthy person, who was also an extremely big Talmud Chacham. He had all of it. He had a close connection to Rome. And he, has a, uh, he also comes from the lineage of the Nesias, where he's related to Hillel, to Shimon ben Gamliel, to the next Gamliel, so on and so forth, until we finally get to Rebbe. 
Rebbe is usually, the, our perception is that he's the end of the Tanam. It might not be an exact, precise statement, but Rebbe Yudah Anasi is credited with being the end of the Tanam, and he's the one who compiles the Mishnah in front of us. So Rebbe says, I'm going to focus on uh, the second point that he makes. He says, He says that we should focus, we should be vigilant with a light mitzvah the same way we would if it was a stringent mitzvah. We shouldn't care to distinguish between the strict mitzvahs and the light mitzvahs. Even the light mitzvahs, we should be very careful with. What's the reason for that? So Rabbi Yudah says, Because you don't know what the reward is. So how can you make calculations based upon what your perceived notion is for the reward of a mitzvah if you don't know what the reward is? And Rebbe is picking up exactly on this detail that we open with. We don't know what the reward is. HaKadosh Baruch Hu doesn't disclose that. So if HaKadosh Baruch Hu doesn't disclose what the reward is, then we can't make our decision about the way we're going to prioritize mitzvahs based upon what we think of being more of an important mitzvah than the next. So a mitzvah kala can be just as important and we should be just as vigilant to fulfill a mitzvah kala as a chamura. We can't wonder, we can't base our decisions based on the matan and mitzvahs. That's the lesson that Rebbe, Rebbe says. The very next line in the Mishnah, Rebbe says something that almost, not directly, but it almost contradicts what he just said. He makes another point. When a person comes to a challenge, a challenging times, and they wonder whether or not it's worth it to do a mitzvah. Right? So we've heard of Jews who have such challenges. right? We don't know. A person comes to a, a hard point in the road where they're, they're not sure if they, how much to prioritize the performance of the mitzvah. So Rebbe speaks to our inner psyche, and he says, how do we summon, how do we summon the strength to perform the mitzvah? So he says, think about the schach. If you think about the schar, if you think about the amount of reward that you're going to get, well, then that will be a motivation to do it. If you think about how much you have to lose without doing it versus how much you have to gain, if you would do it, well, then that's going to motivate you to do the mitzvah. So it's an amazing thing. Because here, Rebbe is telling us that in our minds, we're supposed to think about, make a calculation of the value of the mitzvah and think about how much more that is worth than if we wouldn't do the mitzvah. And based upon that calculation, well, then it makes sense that we should do the mitzvah. That's what Rebbe Yudah seems to be saying. Now, that lesson almost, as I said, contradicts what he said in the line right before. First, the Rebbe Yudah tells us that You don't know what the reward is. We don't know what the ultimate value is. So if we don't know the ultimate value, so you have this mitzvah, that mitzvah, we have no idea what the rewards are. It's not something HaKadosh Baruch Hu chose to disclose. So we're left in the dark. We don't know. If that's true, it's an unknown variable. Well, then how can I make a decision to do a mitzvah or not to do a mitzvah, to do this or to do that, based upon the calculation, and you hear it in Rebbe's words, this, the cheshvon, the, 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 the calculation of what the reward of a mitzvah is. I can't calculate something that I don't know what it is to begin with. If I have a, a value, if there's a price tag to something, then I can consider my options and decide whether or not it's worth it. But if I don't have that in front of me and I don't know what the value is and I'm guessing, how can I make an educated, how can I make an, a good decision if I'm guessing about what the scar is? That's, you know, it, 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 it would almost seem to be a question which would, we would dismiss if not for the fact that it comes right after the line in the Mishnah that we're supposed to be because we don't know the scar. Oh, you don't know the scar when you're not sure what to do, if you should do a mitzvah or not, think about how much the scar will be and then you'll decide. In other words, if we would have said, just in an objective sense, motivate yourself to do mitzvahs because think about how much a mitzvah is worth. All right, we could say to ourselves, maybe we don't know precisely the value. 
but there's got to be some great value for a mitzvah. So that's how Rebbe is, is trying to motivate us. But if you look at the context here, how it's juxtaposed right after Rebbe tells us that we have no clue what the reward is, how can Rebbe then say, if you want to know to do it or not, you better think about the reward. Do I know the reward or do I not know the reward? That is the basic question that, uh, that I want to start with tonight. Now, there's a, a mahalot from the Imre Ames. It's a bit of a chasidah shetaych, maybe, in the, reading of the, in the reading of the Mishnah. But it, the, the idea that he's saying, I think you can find in many, many sources of chazal. We're only going to look at a few tonight. But it's a concept that's so relevant to us practically any time. He says as follows. Rebbe is not only is he not contradicting himself, it's a continuation. What does it mean it's a continuation? What is the value of the mitzvah? Or let's back up for a second. Why didn't Hashem give us a prescribed value for the mitzvah? Why isn't there a set amount? You want to know what the answer is? Because the amount is limitless in and of itself. It's blank. Hashem doesn't give a value because in and of itself, we don't know what the value is. It means more than we as human beings aren't aware of a truth of a fact. It means there really is no value. Mitzvot are given in an open-ended sense. What is the value then? Whatever we as human beings decide the value should be. So Rebbe says, You should be just as vigilant to do a light mitzvah as a chamer mitzvah. There's no set amount here. There's no price tag to a mitzvah, a sense of logic and reason. Well, if I do a mitzvah that's harder and takes more time and only comes up once a year, I'm going to get more reward. You can get just an equal of a reward if you do something that's light and if you do something that's hard. Really? Is that possible? How in the world is that possible? You know the answer? Because we, as human beings, are going to decide. You want to know what the price is? Think about it in your own mind. What you, as human beings, will decide the value is, that now determines the reality of the schar that is waiting for us. The value is the way we think. And perhaps, to add on to the words of the Imre Emes, we see in, a word, in the, word, the words of Hebrew itself, in the Shurashim, if we look at the word, there's an amazing sense of irony. The word chashuv in Hebrew, the root of the word is ches shin vez. And that means significant, valuable. Chashuv means something that's worthy. Well, the word ches shin vez, and you see it here in the Mishnah, michashev, to think, means thought. So in Hebrew, the word thinking is exactly the same shoresh as the word of value. But what does that tell us? That tells us what we learned in Economics 101, that value is based on what people think. There is some times in life where there's maybe a concept of absolute value, but more often than not, in the business, the way the money is made is because the way people perceive value creates value. And until that lesson goes in, it's very difficult to understand the economics, and the way that money is made. But once we realize that value is not absolute, that value is dictated by human thoughts, and that demand and the way we perceive something to be actually makes the reality of its value. Once that simple lesson goes in, then boom, the world is open in front of us. And we have so many different ways to explore and sometimes exploit the value in making money. And that lesson is right there in the Hebrew language itself. Chashuv and machshav are the same exact thing. We have no intimate knowledge. There is no precise price tag to any mitzvah. What is it? Have a machashe. You got to think about it. 
And whatever you think about it, when you're in a predicament, should I do it? Should I not do it? When the choice is made to prioritize the mitzvah, whatever we gave up on to do the mitzvah, that just made the mitzvah more valuable. And as the Imre Emma suggests in his words, his parable for it is, you know, you imagine you have somebody who uh, is, is, is struggling to put on tefillin. And they, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. They're in a struggle. They're in a struggle with the mitzvah of tefillin. And then they're tested. HaKadosh Baruch Hu sends a test their way. And uh, someone comes over and says, you know what, I'll give you, you know, a tremendous amount of money if you wouldn't put on tefillin today. Let's call it $100,000 if you won't put on tefillin today. person thinks to himself, $100,000, put on tefillin. You know what? I mean, yesterday I didn't put on the tefillin. $100,000, it's a lot. The person makes the decision to put on the tefillin and push away the $100,000, then that decision just made the value of tefillin go way up. So it's like an amazing stock tip here. The way that the value of the mitzvah goes up is what were the decisions that we make. The way we think of it, the way we prioritize it, that's the very value that we have. That's the first concept to begin. I think if we look at a, mit, uh, a Mishnah later on in the fourth chapter, we can see this almost, once you learned it there, it will, it will be almost startling how clear it is in this Mishnah. In this Mishnah, Ben Azai says a puzzling statement. He says, Ben Azai over, having rutz the mitzvah kala. A person should be running quick. Again, almost like the same idea as Rebbe. Be vigilant to, to fulfill a mitzvah kala, a light mitzvah. Just as one would do for a strong mitzvah. It doesn't matter which one it is. And a person will be able to run away from sin. Now, this is already an interesting you know, idea. Run to a mitzvah and, 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 and run away from the sin. Okay. What's the reason for this? Mitzvah causes mitzvah. Avera causes avera. Why? What is the bottom line here? Sheschar mitzvah mitzvah. That's a famous statement. Sheschar mitzvah mitzvah. The reward of the mitzvah is mitzvah. So there are those who say, and perhaps this is the simple interpretation of the, mitzvah, of the Mishnah, that the reward of doing a mitzvah is that you have an opportunity to do another mitzvah. And almost, you know, it's, it's just reiterating the point of mitzvah goreres mitzvah. The reason it's so amazing to do a mitzvah is because if you do it, then another opportunity comes your way. Opportunity makes more. So you do a mitzvah, you get another chance to do another mitzvah. And then the Mishnah is almost reiterating its point. Mitzvah goreres mitzvah and shizchar mitzvah mitzvah. But according to the Emre Ames, the Mishnah means a much simpler point. First of all, mitzvah goreres mitzvah. That's always why you shouldn't undervalue the, uh, doing a light mitzvah because you never know the opportunity one mitzvah can lead to a next. That's one point. But then there's the second point. Shizchar mitzvah mitzvah. Who told you there's a schar here that has a set price tag? You want to know what the ultimate schar mitzvah is? It's the mitzvah. What does that mean? It is the mitzvah. It means that you cannot be any external sense of value to a mitzvah. Mitzvah is whatever we make of it. Whatever the mitzvah is, then that is its value. So if a person has the ability to be the mitzvah kala, meaning that they connect to HaKadosh Baruch Hu through a mitzvah kala, and it doesn't matter to them whether it comes up once a year, once a day, if it's easy, it's hard, but they're viewing the mitzvah as a means of connection, and they feel connected, and they're putting in all of that to the mitzvah that they're doing, schar mitzvah mitzvah then it's a limitless extent that a person can grow through the experience of doing a mitzvah. A mitzvah is not only thinking, what exactly is HaKadosh Baruch Hu saying right now? HaKadosh Baruch Hu is saying right now, whatever you're connecting, 
by doing the mitzvah. And that's exactly the point, that we have to stop looking at mitzvahs only as commandments of things that we have to do, that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is only expecting of us. Mitzvahs are so much more. Mitzvahs are opportunities. Mitzvahs are means of connection. So the schar of the mitzvah isn't, you know, Hashem, we're a good boy because Hashem said it and we listen. A mitzvah is something more fundamental, that it's a connection. It's something that's metakin ourselves. It uplifts us. We're taught that there are 248 mitzvahs that correspond to the 248 limbs of the body. Whether that's meant to be a literal point or a metaphoric point is not the issue. But the point that I think Hazal are trying to express is that we have to realize that there's growth through the performance of a mitzvah. And if a person doesn't look at the light mitzvah and they think, oh, only the more important thing counts, well, then they're losing that aspect. They're missing the aspect of internal growth that takes place in mitzvah through connection, through feeling elevated. And a mitzvah can do that to us. And that's schar mitzvah. Mitzvah, the ultimate proof exactly of the value is what, ex- what it is that we think about. Okay. This is a lesson from the Imre Ames on schar mitzvah. But what I found amazing, an amazing insight um, that really is something fresh. It happens to be coincidentally, I was looking over this Gemara in Chulen, completely unrelated to Pirkei Avos at all. This would be like the last Gemara you would look at for anything with Pirkei Avos. This is a sugya in the middle of the laws of Kisei Hadam. And we won't go into the intricacies of Kisei Hadam right now, but there's a law that when a person slaughters either a wild beast or a fowl, the law is that when the blood is spilled on the ground, a person is meant to cover the blood. And it's meant to be a sign, just not for us to delve into so much now, but it's meant to be a sign of respect for life, for the concept of blood for life. Okay. The Gemara talks about a fascinating story. There was once a story where one person shechted a, a bird, and instead of, he really has first priority, first rights to perform the mitzvah. If you were the shochet, the Pasuk indicates the shochet, he has the first dibs at covering the blood. But somebody saw that the shochet had shechted, and he went ahead and he chopped the mitzvah away. He went and he steals the mitzvah, so to speak. He does the mitzvah before the shochet had a chance to cover the blood with some dirt, some random stranger comes along and he grabs the mitzvah for himself. And that was a story that took place in the times of the Tanar. And the Gemara analyzes whether or not there's any sense of wrongdoing from the person who has grabbed the mitzvah. And Rabbi Gamliel, the Gemara says, and this is, if you think about the, the economics here, it's really, it, it's mind-boggling because Rabbi Gamliel said that the person who took the mitzvah has to pay 10 zehuvim. 10 zehuvim is a lot, a lot, a lot of money. Ten zuvim of gold, uh, so one, one zuvim of gold is 25 silver dinner. Now, I think we'll know, you know, where, where, so 10 of that is 250. Now, 200 dinner, the Gemara says a person can live off for a year. You might remember it from the amount of aksuba, right? So there's different opinions exactly how much has to be paid for aksuba, whatever it is. But we're talking thousands and thousands of dollars, okay? Rabbi Gamliel is mechaev, thousands and thousands of dollars for this person who took the mitzvah away from the shochet. The shochet had the right, and he take, and now Rabbi Gamliel takes the 10 zuhubim. He says that the person who took the mitzvah away has to pay 10 zuhubim. Now, after that, the Gemara tells us, and obviously what we want to understand is what's the value of 10 zuhubim? What's, what's the point of this idea that you take away a mitzvah from somebody, you have to pay 10 zuhubim? Before we even get there, there's a very famous tshuva that's written. There, it's a gishmaka tshuva. It was written in Eretz Yisrael, and uh, there was a case of an of an oval. An oval, unfortunately, it was somebody who had the rights to the oval. And as an oval, he had first dibs. But uh, somebody in the shul didn't appreciate the way that the person davened, whatever reason. And he just ran up to the oval. He ran up to the oval and he started davening. 
So the Abba wasn't able to daven. And uh, okay, wasn't able to daven. So he stood in the minion, whatever it was. And afterwards, he goes over and he, uh, he tells the guy, you know, you owe me, you, you owe me thousands of dollars. The guy said, what do you mean I owe you thousands of dollars? And he said, this Gemara. He said, you owe me thousands of dollars. This Gemara is codified as a halacha in Shulchan Aram. That when a person takes away a mitzvah from somebody else, that is the halacha. The halacha is that they owe them a lot, a lot of money because they took away the money. They took it away. And as we're going to see in the Gemara, it's going to, be, it's going to get even crazier what the amount of money is because the Gemara continues. What about if you don't take away a mitzvah from somebody, but you just take away a bracha? And the Gemara says an example would be Birkas Hamazon. So Birkas Hamazon, instead of being one single mitzvah, Birkas Hamazon is four brachas. So you have four brachas. So you have to pay, if you would have to pay separately for each bracha, that if you steal Birkas Hamazon from somebody, meaning you lead the benching instead of when it really wasn't your shot, meaning usually the host has the right you know, to dictate who is honored with leading the benching. If somebody goes out of turn and just takes it for themselves and starts benching, well, now everybody's forced to listen. He's, so to speak, stolen the mitzvah. And if you have to pay separately for each bracha, then he has to pay 40 zuvim of gold. Think about how much money that would be, right? Whereas if it's just the, 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 maybe you don't have to pay unless there's an act of a mitzvah. So the Gemara tells us that there was a story that can answer this question. And the story takes place with none other than Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi. It takes place with Rebbe. There was once a tzedukim who said to Rebbe, now think about the significance of the tzedukim. Again, the tzedukim are fighting not only political battles, but intellectual battles with the rabbis. And the tzedukim says to Rebbe that it sounds like there's more than one God because the Pasuk says, a difficult Pasuk in Amos, it says, It sounds like there's a creator of the mountains and a separate creator of the winds. So the tzedukim was trying to challenge Rebbe Yudah Hanasi intellectually about how he understood the Pasuk. So Amar Le, Rabbi Yehuda Anasi says back, Shote, he calls him a fool. He says, Shefil, the Sefer, the Kral, look at the end of the Pasuk, Hashem Tzvakos Shemo, that it's the same God, it's the same Hashem Tzvakos, who's of both. So the, the Tzaduki was stumped. He didn't know how to answer Rebbe. So he said to Rebbe, he says, you know what? Give me three days. I'm going to try to come up with an answer, how to prove that my question was correct. And there's actually more than one God. So what happened was that Rebbe fasted for three days straight that this Tzaduki shouldn't be able to come up with an answer. Now, just to explain what in the world this means, you know, Rabbi Yudha, what the Tzaduki really has an answer, what really are there two gods? Of course not, but what it means, and it's really a sign of the times, how sensitive Rabbi Yudha Hanasi was that the overall state of where the Jewish people were holding, it was so important that they shouldn't perceive any significance whatsoever to the argument that the Tzaduki would make. The victory, the moral victory for the religious Jews at the time, if Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi would be proved to be correct, would be so valuable that it was worth literally fasting for three days. It's like a time up in Esara, other things that we fast for for three days. That's not something that we do lightly, fasting for three days. Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi fast for three days. That the Tzaduki shouldn't even be able to have anything to answer. It's not about the veracity of Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi's point. It's about whether or not the Tzaduki was going to accept it and it would be a great victory for the Jews. So at the end of the three days, Right, finally, Rabbi Danasi is going to break his fast. So So what happens was he's about to, he's about to, 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 to eat the meal. It's going to go. And suddenly they tell him, Tzuduki Koya Baba. There's a Tzuduki waiting for you at your door. Who, who is this Tzuduki? Not the Tzuduki that had the fight with Rebbe. It was a different Tzuduki. And he says to him, Amalei Rebbe Mavasar Tovos I come bearing good news. What's the good news? 
my friend, the other tzaduki, didn't have an answer. And he was so embarrassed that he didn't have the answer that, you know what, he just threw himself off the roof, and now everyone knows that your answer was the correct answer. So Rabbi Yudha Hanasi is vindicated. So Amar Lo, Rabbi Yudha Hanasi says to the tzaduki, because I guess in a sense of gratitude for sharing the good news with him, he says, perhaps you'd like to join me in my meal. Rabbi Hanasi is about to break bread and, 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 and begin to eat. So he says to the tzaduki, would you like to come in? Amar Lo he says, yes, he accepts it, and they eat together. After they eat and drink, Rabbi Yudah Hanasi, and this I'm going to say over the Gemara the way that the Achronim explained it. Rabbi Yudah Hanasi didn't want the Tzaduki, not only did he not want him to lead benching, he didn't want the, 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 the Tzaduki to even answer Amen to his bracha. That's how sensitive Rabbi Yudah Hanasi was against the power of the Tzaduki. And he felt that they were answering Amen, not with the right intent, not to the right power, so to speak. Rabbi Yudah Hanasi wanted to kick him out of the house before he benched. So he says to this Tzaduki, he says to him, do you want, if you'd like, I'll give you 40 Zuhuvim and I'll send you flying. Go, I'll give you 40 Zuhuvim, thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. Go, if you'll leave before benching. Or if you want, you can stay for benching and answer Amen to my prophets. And what did the Tzaduki answer? I mean, what would you answer in that situation? Answer a few Amens, right? Or the, the tens and thousands of dollars. And the Tzaduki says to him, he says, I want to stay. He says, I want to stay for benching. After the Tzaduki says, I want to stay for benching, what happens? Yotza Baskel, a Baskel, heavenly voice emerges from heaven. Va'amran, it proclaims, Koshel bracha You want to know the value of benching? The Koshel bracha, being involved in the ceremony of answering Amen with benching, the value is 40 Zuhuvim. What's the Gemara saying? I mean, the Suzuki is incredible. We're going to see in a second how incredible he was. But what's the shot in this Baskel coming out? After he says, I'm going to stay for benching, for, and I'm going, to, I'm going to give up on the 40 Zuhuvim, the Baskel emerges and it says, ah, Kosher Bracha is worth 40 Zuhuvim. You know, it's a din, it's a din, the Shach brings in Shulchan Aruch, that there was a, it's a, I shouldn't say it's a din, it's a custom, that when you give uh, somebody the honor of leading benching, instead of just putting the, giving him the cup, you know, okay, bench, you say to him, this is 40 Zuhuvim, and you give it to him because it's an expression of what the honor is worth. You know what the honor of benching is? The honor of benching is 40 Zuhuvim. Amazing thing. That's what the shaft brings based upon our Gemara. Why is the Bosco coming out now? And this is what's amazing is who's the person in the story? The person in the story is Rabbi Yudah Hanasi. What does Rabbi Yudah Hanasi teach to us here in Perkei Avos? We are completely unaware of the value of mitzvahs. What does that mean? That we should just, it's just blank. We have no idea. We said no. Have a machashiv schar mitzvah. You decide the value. Whatever you prioritize, whatever you think the value is, you make that it be its value. That's exactly what's taking place in this story here. Rabbi Yudah where did this story, where did he get this lesson from? You see it, what happened to him in his conversation here with the Tzaduki. He learned this lesson from this righteous Tzaduki. The Tzaduki here was willing to give up on 40 Zuhuvim in order to stay and answer Amen for the Kaishal Bracha. The Basco comes out and says, you just made it worth 40 Zuhuvim. It was blank. It was worth whatever it was worth. We, there was no natural ex explicit amount that it just is because it is. It's not like that. But if you stay and you say, no matter what, I'm going to stay for benching because benching is valuable, whatever mu however much you sacrifice, commensurate to how much you sacrifice, that precisely is the value. It means that he literally made it into that value. 
What an incredible point. The mitzvahs are open-ended. It's, us for, it's up to, for us to decide what it is that they are worth. The story has such a beautiful ending, although it's difficult to understand exactly what, what it means. Rabbi Yitzchak says, now Rabbi Yitzchak is one of Rabbi Yudah Hanasi's youngest Talmud. So he says, Adayin, he says, this family from this Siduki, this righteous Siduki still exists. And they're a prominent family. He doesn't, you know, talk exactly as if they're a tzaddikim. He doesn't say that, but he says they're prominent. The Koronosal, what's the name of the family? Mishpachas Bar Leonus. Their name of the family is Bar Leonus. What's Pshat in this statement? They're, 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 they're a prominent family in Rome. Doesn't sound like they're too righteous, A. And B, the name of the family is Bar Leonos. Why do we, why do we care about that? So there's a beautiful Ben Yehoyada. The Ben Yehoyada says as follows, that really, as we see in that story, the Tzaduki was righteous and he feared for his life and he was never able to break, to break free from Tzaduki. And if you think it sounds like a funny theory, just think about some of our, uh, some of some Jews who at much more recent times than the Gemara, had to hide their identity as hidden Jews. That's exactly what's going on here. There was a person who had Sadduki family and he was scared for his life to break free and join the rabbis. And at a time when there was money, this was politics, this was Rome, this was everything to Jewish culture, this person was scared. And they would call him as follows. Leonus means as follows. Lamid Vov Yud. His name was Levi. Levi Onus. Levi, the person who was forced. Levi, the person who had to hide his identity. That was the name of the person. Where do you find him? You find him hiding in the prominent people in Rome. You don't find him in the base of Mikdash. You don't find him in Eretz Yisrael. He's not some prominent Rashi Yeshiva. He's hiding out there in Rome because he never broke free. He's Levi Anus, but he's a tzaddik. And we have to give him the respect and take away from the story that this person changed forever, indelibly impressed a different price tag on Kaisal Bracha. It's an amazing thing. Next time you go, you're about to bench. Bench quickly, get a sitter, not get a sitter. Look at what this guy did. Amazing thing. He forever changed the value. That's what happened. We may not be here. It all comes from some tzaduki from this outsider. He's not even known to us. But he changed the world. He changed the world with what he did. Others say something different. That Bar Leonis means the son from lion. And Rabbi Yudah Hanasi is known to be the lion because he comes from Sheva Yehuda. And the Yehuda is compared to the lion, and he became a close, uh, a close disciple of Rebbe, and has a more of a happy ending where he's not hiding his identity. But I thought that the Ben Yehoyada's pshat, that he's Levi Anus, it's such a beautiful point because it shows us that values of mitzvah are forever changed because of one person's action. This person you've never heard of, Levi Anus, he's in somewhere in Rome. You'll hardly know he's a Jew. You'll never know, it's a secret. But what happens is he forever changed the value. Uh, the value of bench. I think we can see this in another Gemara, a famous Gemara, a Gemara in Yuma. The Gemara says that, that, that after a person passes away, everybody goes to a din v'cheshbon in front of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. We all ask that it's a day of reckoning where HaKadosh Baruch Hu goes through what we've done. And everybody's got excuses, right? We all can give many excuses for not living up to what we could have done in this world. So what happens is, the Gemara says, is that some people claim that they were too poor to perform mitzvahs correctly. You know, they, they didn't have the right capabilities. They were, always had the anxiety of, of where their next meal was going to come from, and they were always struggling, and they didn't have the right conditions to study Torah and perform mitzvahs correctly. And if a person makes that excuse, the Gemara says, well, we answer them with the story of Hillel. Hillel was someone who was so poor 
and he sacrificed so much still to learn Torah. He puts himself up on the roof on a snowy night to press his ear against the skylight to hear from Shmaya Vavtalion. And through, like, through doing that, he gets, eventually, he gets a connection to them. He learns Torah from Shmaya Vavtalion at a time that many, many Jews rejected Shmaya Vavtalion because Shmaya Vavtalion were Gerim. And he will still sacrifice tremendously to go learn Torah from them. And if Hillel does it, then uh, there's no excuse for us either. If a person comes and says the opposite, I was too rich to learn Torah. I had too many things in my mind. There was too much in my mind. There was too focused. Too many people needed me and my attention in order to have time to properly apply to Torah and mitzvot. A person makes that excuse, the Gemara says. Well, we give him the example of Rabbi Lazar ben Kharsim. Rabbi Lazar ben Kharsim had all these business ventures and somehow still he became a great Torah scholar. So the Gemara tells us, fine, beautiful, beautiful Gemara that we're aware of. But I want to focus on the way that the Gemara ends, ends this story. The Gemara says, Nimsa, it is found, Hillel mechayev es ha'anim. Hillel obligates the poor. Rabbi Lazar ben Kharsom mechayev es ha'ashir. Lazar ben Kharsom obligates the rich. And there's a vart I heard, it's a beautiful vart. I heard this vart from Rabbi Asher Arieli. It's a beautiful magad shir in the mirror, one of the largest live shiurim. He asked a very simple question. It stuck with me. He said, I don't understand. If a person goes to, uh, in front of HaKadosh Baruch and there's a day of reckoning, and HaKadosh Baruch says, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? Either we had a good excuse, or we didn't have a good excuse. Why does HaKadosh Baruch need to tell us whether we're right or we're wrong based upon what Hillel did or what Lazar ben Kharsom did? Why is it like that? Why is it like that at all? Judge me for myself. If it's a legitimate excuse that I, my circumstances in life weren't fit to, to learn as much as God would have wanted me to, then it's an excuse. And if it's not an excuse, if I'm not correct, then I'm not correct. God should show me that I'm not correct. He doesn't need to show an, an illustration from somebody else. Like that kid, you know, you come over and you, your parents are upsetting you for whatever reason. And they say, why don't you be like Yanko? Why don't you be like the kid next door? What does that have to do with the kid next door? I'm me, right? So speak to me about me myself. Either it makes sense that I could be doing better or it doesn't make sense, but speak to me as a person. Why is HaKadosh Baruch Hu speaking to us only through what Hillel and Rabbi Lazar ben Kharsim do? So it's a very interesting answer that he gave. He said as follows, that the power of what the Gemara is saying, and I think it goes exactly with the themes that we've looked at so far, is that really they are legitimate excuses. Really indigent, wealth, are very much legitimate excuses not to have time for Torah and mitzvahs. There's no question. It's not a question of the legitimacy of the excuse. Hillel Mechaev Eshaniyah means that Hillel changed the world. Until Hillel came along with his sacrifice of pressing his ear to the skylight in the snow to hear a Torah from Mishmayev and Avtalion, the excuse remained legitimate and it would get us out of a lot. But once someone like Hillel came along and sacrificed beyond what was a legitimate excuse, he pushes so much that says beyond what's reasonable, he still does anyway, then the world has changed. And Hillel is mechayev. Hillel obligates us. The excuse is really a good excuse, but Hillel changed it. And Rabbi Lazar ben Kharsim changed it for the rich. Things change from sacrifice. Sacrifice matters. Even when it doesn't seem like, oh, it's no different. So one person does a mitzvah, it was so easy. Somebody else sacrificed. So what's the difference? The difference is huge. Sacrifice forever changes value. And I think this is something that we really live every single Rosh Hashanah. Every single Rosh Hashanah, we cling to the shofar. We want the shofar. Well, what's the shofar? The shofar is the aisle, the ram that was offered instead of Yitzchak. 
What do we care so much about the Ram? We care a lot about the Akeda. We care a lot about, uh, we should care a lot about Yitzchak. But why do we care so much about that Ram? The Ram is an afterthought. It's not the Akeda itself. We cling to the shofar from that Ram like it's like, it's like our biggest schos. The aisle after the Akeda is our schos. Our merit in front of God is the Akeda. It's not the aisle. What are we grabbing the aisle of such important significance? And if you look in this story in the Akedah, you'll see that HaKadosh Baruch really only promises so much to Avram after he brings the aisle. It seems that the Akedah is incomplete until the aisle is brought in part of, instead of Yitzchak. Why? Imagine Avram and Yitzchak had left the scene. They would have been willing to dedicate themselves to God and sacrifice Yitzchak. And instead, Hashem says, doesn't. Don't do it. Had they walked away right then, would anything have been different? Is it really that important that they bring another carbon instead of Yitzchak? Who cares? The answer is very simple. Hashem is showing as follows. Your sacrifice, the fact that you were willing to do that much, but I don't require it. So now what? Nothing's changed? No. The sacrifice created an aisle. The new opportunity came because of the sacrifice. Something new existed that would never have been there if not for the sacrifice. It's not that the Akedah is we theoretically would have been willing to do. The Akedah had a tangible change in the world. And the tangible change is the ayul. And the beauty of the Akedah is the dedication to God that was reality in the ayul. It wasn't the theoretical possibility of slaughtering Yitzchak, but rather that the theoretical possibility of slaughtering Yitzchak creates a change. And the change that exists and is bottled up in the ayul, that is our marriage. Sacrifice is never for naught. And when we wonder about whether we're doing anything or whether or not, Hillel changes the world. The value of the kosher bracha becomes 40 zuz. Everything happens through what we decide it to be. That is the ultimate lesson here from what we're looking at in these sources. I think that um, as a good, a good Jewish boy growing up in America, somehow I, I, I can't stop thinking about this every single Yom Kippur. I think about Sandy Colfax. Why, do you, why, why, why is it such a great story? Now, you know, you think about it. There's something that's just like so amazing to every American kid who likes baseball. The story of Sandy Colfax now pitching on Yom Kippur, game one, 1965. It's something that, it's just an amazing thing. You can't, you can't quite wrap your head around it. But I think what it is, and this is perhaps what, I don't know, this is what I think about it on Yom Kippur. I, every Yom Kippur somehow across my mind is, he forever changed the way we value what Yom Kippur is. It was in one moment where the decision is made that I'm going to prioritize Yom Kippur over baseball. I'm not going to pitch. And we don't know what he's thinking, how hard it was, all the different theories that are out there. But the bottom line is it was game one of the World Series. And it happens to have a great ending because he pitched game seven on two days rest and they won the World Series. It happens to be true. But in the moment, not pitching game one was a huge, huge story. And that what he did in that moment is that he changed the value of Yom Kippur. How much is Yom Kippur worth? How much is it worth it to fast on Yom Kippur? How much is it worth it not to go to, Yom, not to, go to work on Yom Kippur? How much is it worth? It's exactly the story what we've been talking about with the, with the Imri Emes and the Kaisho Baruch HaShavim Arboam Zuz. It's mamish this point. What's the value? When someone came, when something came his way and he decided the value when he didn't pitch, he made a new value out of Yom Kippur. He changed the very meaning. And sometimes we think about sacrifice and we wonder whether or not anyone recognizes our sacrifice. You know, Sandy Koufax happened to have in this amazing opportunity where he inspired every, everybody 
and so many Jewish kids, you know, didn't go to work that day that were planning on it. And in the moment in 1965, it was great. And Sports Illustrated, 50 years later, is writing articles about the decision of Sandy Koufax. You look at how many people he was inspired. Okay, that's amazing. But we all don't have the chance to be Sandy Koufax. Not that many people care about our sacrifice. And I think that's the takeaway, why we think about it for ourselves, each Yom Kippur. Does anybody really know if I'm sacrificing right now during the Ela? Does anybody really know what it means? Yeah, stand up, sit down. I always think that thing with the Aron, you know, it's, it's really only a minute that we should stand when the Aron's open. Not the, the most important priority to stand during the Ela. If a person's tired, there's absolutely nothing wrong with sitting down during the Ela. But somehow when a person's tired, I'm thinking about it. No one's going to judge me if I sit down. Nobody cares. Nobody cares if I'm right, I'm wrong. It doesn't matter. But what it is is that it's internal sacrifice. It's sacrifice that's dictating the value of something. And to realize that our sacrifice is never for naught. And we say this in davening each and every day, that our deepest desire to our Kaddish Baruch Hu is, means that all of our sacrifice shouldn't be worthless. Because it's an insecurity that as human beings we all have. We're not sure how much we matter. We're not sure. And we look towards recognition from other people, recognition for ourselves. We look at results. We try to figure out the value of sacrifice through so many things that aren't about sacrifice itself. And the lesson of the shofar, the lesson of schar mitzvah mitzvah, the lesson of the arboam zehufim is that we ourselves make the sacrifice. We ourselves therefore make the value. It's unlimited. And when we think about what we can do with it, what was being accomplished through its value, it's for always there. And it's an interesting story. I'll just conclude with this. In Valajin, within itself, I don't know the, de- the details of the story, who it was, but there was once a boy, an average, a mediocre boy in the yeshiva in Valajin, who, um, who was asked to say, like a small chabura, to, to share his insight on the piece of Gemara that they were learning. And usually when it came his turn, you know, the boy, he, he did a decent job, but it was nothing special. And it came time to one sugya, one, I don't even know which particular sugya it was, but it came time to one sugya, and the boy just, he blew everyone out. It was amazing. Everyone was so impressed, and Itziv was there, and he said, wow, how can it be? You know, where, where, what, what happened now? Was it anything special? And the boy said, you know, he said, I don't know. He said, I don't know. It happens to be, I sat down to this piece of Gemara, and it spoke to me. I enjoyed it. And I put in a lot more work than I usually do. And then Tziv says, and he, he knew the boy's grandfather. And Tziv thought, and he says, I know why. He says, I remember your grandfather. He says, I remember him vividly with my own eyes. I watched him struggle over that sugya. I don't know exactly what the details were, but he was persecuted. He was in running. He was hiding. And then Tziv said that his, this boy's grandfather never stopped reviewing that sugya. And he was thinking about it and speaking of insights. And years later, in the yeshiva of Alajin, this boy's grandson goes to open a Gemara. And this mediocre boy is inspired by this piece of Gemara. He connects to it. And that Chabura is forever different. Right? So that's exactly what we have. That's Hillel Machai Vesani. I mean, you think about the power of legacy. We're in here in a yard site cheer. It's about specifically Mr. Jerome Turk. But it's, it's, it's all of us. We're living for so much more than just what we have. Every sacrifice that we have. It never goes for nothing. There's always impressions that are left. We don't know how they're there, but the value is forever, forever changed. Every little piece of learning that we have. Mirza Hashem is supposed to be, as I mentioned, the Neshama should have an Aliyah, should be an inspiration for all of us. Mirza Hashem, we should be able to learn more. I just want to finish that for anyone who hasn't been able to sign up, we're having this great learnathon now in Young Israel. 
chance to study more Torah. Everyone should go see yws.org to see more details, great opportunities to study Torah if you haven't been able to do so yet. Have a great night, everyone. Yishkoach, Rabbi. Of course. Yishkoach, excellent. Thank you.